Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. This week takes us to Wilmington, Delaware, and in all the episodes that we've put out, I think this is our first case from Delaware. Wilmington is the largest city in Delaware and part of the Delaware Valley metropolitan area that includes Philadelphia and Pennsylvania and Camden in New Jersey. Back in the mid-90s, Wilmington was also home to an accomplished lawyer named Thomas Capano. The Capano family was a well-known family in Wilmington, having made their fortune in construction years earlier, and Thomas was one of four brothers and had surpassed simply being the son of a wealthy contractor by becoming a state prosecutor turned legal counsel to the governor of Delaware. He was then able to launch himself a career as a political consultant before settling in as a partner at a prominent law firm in the city. Those who knew Thomas Capano professionally knew him to be a well-put-together man. He was successful, smart, confident, and friendly, all attributes that allowed him to progress as far as he had in his career. His brothers, however, did not follow the same path that he did. His three younger brothers were all involved in scandals that required their older brother's legal assistance to try and keep them out of trouble. From drugs to campaign violations to an alleged kidnapping and rape, Capano's younger brothers tested their brother's talent and connections as a high-powered attorney, but each time, Thomas was there to help his brothers out. I found myself wondering how one brother could do so well for himself when the other three fell into such serious legal trouble. However, it wouldn't be long before the tables turned and Thomas found himself in need of assistance from two of his brothers, who were reluctant to get involved. What Thomas needed them to do was unsavory and highly illegal, but he was quick to remind them that they owed him. It wasn't until it was all said and done that the Capano brothers would realize what their allegiance to each other would cost their families, and they were confronted with what Thomas was capable of. In 1994, 47-year-old Thomas started a relationship with a 28-year-old woman named Anne Fahey, who worked as a scheduling secretary for the then-governor, Thomas Carper. Thomas Capano was married at the time and separated from his wife of over 20 years during his relationship with Anne. They continued their relationship until late 1995, when Anne met another man and attempted to break off her relationship with Thomas. By what accounts are available, it seemed that both relationships were rocky, but many people close to Anne weren't privy to all of the details of her relationships, especially her relationship with Thomas. 
Eventually, Anne broke off her relationship with Thomas and was fully invested in her new relationship with a man named Michael Scanlon. One night in late June 1996, Anne's sister Kathleen was worried. She hadn't heard from her younger sister for a couple of days, and repeated attempts to reach her had gone unanswered. Kathleen was so worried that even though it was after 10 o'clock at night, she decided that she needed to drop by Anne's house to see if she was home. Her landlord indicated that they had not seen her in a couple of days, but also noted that that was not uncommon. Anne lived alone and was very quiet, so it was uncommon for the landlord to see her frequently. Kathleen met up with Michael outside of Anne's apartment. Michael was worried because he, like Kathleen, had not heard from Anne, and she had also missed their dinner reservation without calling to let him know. Anyone who knew Anne knew that she was not a flaky person, and bailing on plans and not getting back to her family was not in her character. The two entered her apartment, bracing themselves for the worst, and found a puzzling scene. First off, Anne was not there. This was made more worrisome by the fact that her car was in her assigned parking spot outside, initially a sign that she might be home. So wherever Anne was, she didn't have her car with her. The two found no one inside the apartment, and in the kitchen there was rotting fruit indicating that no one had been home for a while. In Anne's bedroom, her closet had been torn apart, with clothes and dry cleaning bags strewn about. Anne's sister and boyfriend had been ignoring the sinking feeling that something was terribly wrong, but they could no longer deny it when they found Anne's purse in her apartment. Anne would have never left without it, and her wallet was still inside. Now, with more questions about Anne's whereabouts than answers, Kathleen decided that it was time to call the police. Inside her apartment, there were letters from an unknown man that were romantic in nature. They were from Thomas Capano, but only a handful of people knew about their relationship. After going through her things, investigators found information that pointed to Thomas as the author of the letters, and a couple of friends who did know about the relationship were able to confirm that Anne was seeing him for a time, but they were broken up. The breakup was initiated by Anne, and Thomas was deeply unhappy about her decision. A diary found by detectives named Thomas directly and detailed their two-year on-and-off relationship. What started off as an exciting relationship ended on a much more concerning note, with Anne describing him in her own writing in an entry from April of 1996 as, quote, "...controlling, manipulative, insecure, and a jealous maniac." Although their relationship appeared to have ended months earlier, Thomas still seemed to be in Anne's life. The most recent letter found by investigators was dated the day before Anne was last seen. With this lead being the most promising, they headed out to Thomas's house. Although they rang his doorbell in the middle of the night, investigators left their conversation with the impression that Thomas knew why they were there. Someone had tipped him off to the burgeoning investigation. Thomas told investigators that he did see Anne the same day others last reported hearing from her. He said that they went to dinner and then he dropped her off at her house after the two had gone to the grocery store. 
He also told investigators that she allegedly said she had planned to go to the beach the next day, but that she was, quote, airheaded and unpredictable, so he wasn't sure where she actually went after they parted ways that evening. Conversations with Anne's therapist revealed that they were aware of a relationship, but painted a more alarming picture. The therapist said that Anne had confided that she was in fear of Thomas, and Anne had mentioned in their sessions that Thomas had stalked and harassed her repeatedly. But Anne felt like she did not have any recourse because she didn't want to bring unwanted or embarrassing attention to her boss, the governor of Delaware. Thomas had a lucrative career as a political consultant and ran in the same elite circles as the governor. Anne's therapist was not the only person in her life who said that Anne was scared of Thomas. Her hairdresser contacted law enforcement and told them that Anne expressed that she was scared of Thomas and she was fearful of what he was capable of doing to her. Other friends confirmed that their relationship had ended and not on good terms. Thomas, it seemed, had a dark side to him that alarmed more than one of Anne's friends. And now that she was missing, they were concerned for her safety and felt like Thomas was somehow involved. As the investigation went on, it quickly began to narrow with all signs pointing directly at Thomas Capano. But investigators knew that because he was a politically connected lawyer, that they would have to move quickly and they would have to keep every step of their investigation above board. As they moved forward, it became apparent that not only was Thomas not being entirely forthcoming about the events around Anne's disappearance, he had outright lied to them about key details. First, investigators questioned employees at the restaurant where Thomas said he had dinner with Anne. The waitress who served them said that the two seemed to be in a terrible mood and upset with one another. Thomas was overbearing and ordered for Anne, who looked like she did not feel well at all. Not only did they have an acrimonious dinner, Thomas said that he stopped at a gas station after dropping Anne off at her apartment. He claimed that he bought cigarettes from the attendant around 10 p.m. that night. Investigators followed up with the gas station, and not only did no one remember Thomas coming in, the station itself closed before 10. So now there was no proof, other than his own word, that Thomas had dropped Anne off at her apartment. After the holes in Thomas's story grew, so did his reluctance to speak directly with the police, and he directed all further questioning to go through his team of lawyers. Police had a significant amount of circumstantial evidence. Thomas and Anne were seen together the last day anyone heard from her, and they had a noticeably awkward dinner where they seemed upset with each other. Anne had recently ended their two-year-long relationship, which remained a secret mostly due to the fact that Thomas was a much older married man when it began, and Thomas was very unhappy about her decision. Finally, when investigators began retracing Thomas's steps from that night, they found holes in his story that could not be ignored. But Thomas was a Capano, and the Capanos were rich and well-connected, and investigators feared that they only had one shot at arresting him and having it stick. That's when investigators tried to bolster their case against Thomas by utilizing the very thing that helped protect him, his family. Thomas's brothers had all found themselves in some sort of legal trouble of varying degrees over the years, and Thomas had always been there to help them through. If Thomas was responsible for Anne's disappearance, someone had to know about it, and that someone was most likely to be one or more of his own brothers. 
This meant that investigators had three people to put pressure on and three chances that one of them would break and give them the information that they needed to make an arrest. Investigations on two of the brothers turned up some interesting information. One brother, Jerry, had recently sold a fishing boat, and when it was sold, it was missing its anchors. The other brother, Lewis, recently had ordered a large garbage pickup at one of the Capano construction sites. Investigators pressed Lewis, who stated that he believed that his brother was innocent. But when pushed, he confessed that Thomas told him that Anne had been extremely depressed to the point of being suicidal the week that she went missing. He said that while Anne was in Thomas's home, she slit her wrists while she was sitting on his love seat, and her blood had gotten on the couch and on the rug. Interestingly, both of these items were missing from Thomas's house when investigators searched it. Based on Lewis's story, the furniture had been taken to the construction site where the garbage pickup was scheduled and carted off to the landfill before Anne's family even realized that she was missing. This was just another instance adding to a long list of Thomas lying about what he knew about Anne's disappearance, and investigators continued to put pressure on his brothers. Over a year after Anne went missing, in the fall of 1997, Investigators served a warrant at Jerry's home and discovered a firearm inside, which was a violation of his sentencing guidelines from a previous conviction. Jerry appealed to Thomas for help, just as he had in the past, but Thomas saw the writing on the wall and told Jerry that he was on his own. Faced with potential prison time, Jerry was ready to talk and had quite the story to tell. Jerry said that in the weeks prior to Anne's disappearance, Thomas came to him because someone was trying to extort him for money. Thomas claimed that he was in fear of his family's safety and that he wanted to get a gun. Then Jerry stunned investigators by recounting the events of June 28, 1996. That morning, Jerry found his brother outside of his house, sitting in his car. Thomas rolled down his window and told Jerry that he needed his help. Jerry said that he had a bad feeling that Thomas had done something to the person that was attempting to extort him, and having just been in legal trouble himself, he was reluctant to get involved in another crime. Jerry said that he tried to decline, but Thomas pressed him by saying that all he needed was for Jerry to take him out on his boat. Thomas had always been there for him, and had leveraged his power and his position to Jerry's advantage to get him out of trouble in the past. Thomas pleaded with him, saying that he had no one to turn to, and finally Thomas decided to drop the niceties and simply told Jerry that he owed him. Jerry gave in and got ready to take his boat out. Thomas showed up in a different car than he normally drove, with a rolled-up rug that Jerry recognized once was on the floor of Thomas's living room. Thomas also had a large ice chest that was wrapped several times with a chain and padlocked shut. According to Jerry, they left the dock and drove over 60 miles offshore in relative silence. Jerry didn't know the details and had no intention of asking Thomas to clarify what, or worse, who was in the ice chest. Once they stopped the boat, the two brothers lifted the ice chest and threw it over the side. Thomas believed that it would sink and was visibly horrified when it bobbed to the surface and began drifting away. Jerry had a gun on board and shot the ice chest in hopes that that would make it sink, but it didn't. Instead, he saw red liquid pour out of the bullet holes, and the ice chest continued to float. 
Realizing that the ice chest wasn't going to sink, they retrieved it and brought it back on board. Jerry brought Thomas the two anchors that he had for the boat and told Thomas that he was no longer going to help him and sat on the far end and tried to avert his eyes. Thomas opened the ice chest, removed a body that Jerry was not able to identify, wrapped it in the anchors, and threw it overboard. They then threw the now-empty cooler overboard and went back to shore and went their separate ways. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Another fisherman was out on the water near where the Capano brothers had been just days earlier. Floating in the water, he saw a large ice chest. But what this man saw was not just an ice chest. It was a top-of-the-line cooler that someone had foolishly thrown overboard and would be perfect for his fishing boat. The lid was missing, but the man figured that he could easily replace it. That was until he pulled it out of the water and saw that it was bloodstained and riddled with bullet holes, and he brought it to the authorities. After the discovery of the cooler, Lewis confessed to investigators that not only had he overseen the removal of Thomas's couch, he had helped Thomas dispose of a gun as well. And with that, the prosecution finally felt that they had enough evidence to move forward. On November 12, 1997, Thomas Capano was arrested for the murder of Anne Fahey. The prosecution had no body, weapon, or eyewitness to the murder, but they did have a significant amount of circumstantial evidence, all that pointed to Anne no longer being alive. Since Thomas was the last person to see her alive, and with the statements from his brothers, the district attorney felt that they had enough evidence to bring Thomas to trial on charges of first-degree murder. They felt that they could prove that Thomas killed Anne and that he planned it out ahead of time. In October of 1998, Thomas Capano found himself sitting on the opposite side of the courtroom than he was used to. He sat at the defense table as the prosecution argued that although they had not located Anne's body and were not certain of how she died, 
Thomas was absolutely responsible for her disappearance and murder. The entire theory was circumstantial, but comprehensive. The state entered into evidence Anne's diaries that detailed her relationship with Thomas from the beginning. It showed that at first she seemed to love him, and then she met a new man and broke off her relationship with Thomas. By this time, their relationship had soured, and Thomas was showing signs of being controlling and at times scary. The few friends that Anne did confide in said that she was scared of him, and her therapist confirmed that he had exhibited stalking behavior and refused to leave her alone. The prosecutors relied on the statements from Lewis and Jerry to illustrate the cover-up. They wrapped up their case saying that Jerry provided Thomas with the means to dispose of Anne's body and any remaining physical evidence in the ocean nearly 60 miles offshore, and the likelihood of ever recovering Anne's body or any evidence was practically less than zero. Now, the defense had serious issues with Thomas as their client. He was a practicing lawyer, after all, and with his history of being controlling, it was unsurprising that he wanted to be the one calling the shots especially when it was his freedom that was on the line. After essentially browbeating his defense into submission, they agreed to let Thomas take the stand, and it was an unmitigated disaster. He would go on to testify for eight straight days and came off as extremely unlikable and probably unstable. Thomas decided that their best bet was to claim that Anne died as a result of an accidental shooting. According to Thomas in the defense... He did have dinner with Anne that night, and she accompanied him back to his house, which was not uncommon. He had received a call from a woman named Deborah McIntyre, who was someone that he had had an on-and-off-again relationship with for decades. But he allegedly told her not to come over that night because he was busy. What he really didn't want was two women that he had had overlapping relationships with crossing paths. While Anne and Thomas sat in his living room, they heard a noise from the kitchen— and according to Thomas, Deborah emerged with a handgun and threatened to kill herself. Thomas saw her raise her hand and attempted to grab the gun from her, and it went off, striking Anne. Thomas said that he tried to save her, but she was killed instantly. He then said that he compartmentalized these shocking events, which allowed him to have the presence of mind to dispose of Anne at sea. Deborah denied this in its entirety, and Thomas's testimony on the stand was viewed as a disorganized mess. He spent a significant amount of time trashing Deborah and airing out her dirty laundry in an attempt to make the jury dislike her, but his testimony just didn't land the way that he hoped. His attempts to humanize himself with the jury were also unsuccessful, and they found him to be a callous liar who was just trying to get himself out of trouble. Although the prosecution had started the trial with an uphill battle, Thomas handed them a victory. The case went to the jury, and they returned a unanimous verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. In January of 1999, nearly three years after Anne mysteriously vanished, Thomas was sentenced to die by lethal injection. Thomas was scheduled to die in late June of 1999, almost exactly three years to the day after Anne was murdered. In a last-minute reprieve, Thomas's death sentence was overturned, and he was sentenced to life in prison. He continued to serve his prison sentence for 12 years until 2011, when guards found him dead in his cell. He died of an apparent heart attack. He was 61 years old. Anne Fahey's remains have never been recovered, 
and based on Thomas Capano's recounting of the events, they never will. At the time of this recording, she has been missing for 24 years. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to material and further reading on the episode and more information about misconduct. If you have a case you would like to see covered, I have a case submission tab on my website. You can find a link to it in the show notes, and I enjoy taking suggestions from listeners, so if you submit a case, I will do my best to cover it on a future episode. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.